we are experiencing a paradigm shift. A fundamental change in the way we usually do things. We are intentionally choosing to see the silver lining. Opportunity arises. We can shine a light on the things that weren't working well, on those things that weren't really working at all. We can regroup, reevaluate, and re-engineer. It's time to explore new patterns and paradigms. Those that inspire us to rise above the chaos and explore how the conditions of today can take us to a better tomorrow. Patterns and Paradigms, the Pattern Podcast, from Hudson Valley Pattern for Progress. You're listening to Episode 1, Reimagining Public Safety, with your host, Pattern President and CEO, Jonathan Drapkin. Patterns and Paradigms a podcast on reimagining the pandemic world. At Hudson Valley Pattern for Progress, we spend a great deal of time addressing the realities of the Hudson Valley. So in conceiving a podcast, we thought it urgent to help those who want to think of what comes next. Not the next catastrophe, but the next thing we can aspire to. In the midst of a pandemic, economic upheaval, and social unrest, is it possible to use this as a jumping off point to make things better and maybe fix a few things that should have been addressed a long time ago? So it is with excitement and a little trepidation that we enter the world of podcasts with the goal of helping others to creatively reimagine where we are heading. Each week, expect us to start with a summary of the most exciting innovations that have caught our eye. We will use the show to ask my deputy, what's up, Joe? Where I ask Joe Chaika to highlight a few examples of work that the organization is taking on. We will then have a guest each week that can challenge the norms in their own spheres of influence with the goals of motivating you to reimagine yours. Not to anger, but to inspire. Not to fall into despair, but to find the will to rise above the chaos. We will look for examples of doing just that inside of the Hudson Valley as well. Who are the innovators? Who has said that there has to be a better way? We welcome your comments and questions, ideas and suggestions. Go to our website, www.patternforprogress.org slash podcast and send us an email. As time permits, we will discuss some of them on each show. Many New York State residents are reeling from what I call PTSD from being the first state to feel the wrath of COVID-19, to watch as our neighbors died, to wonder where the next meal would come from, to feel the challenge of whether there will be a roof over our heads or a job to return to. There is no question that our pre-pandemic world has dramatically been altered. We are never going back to the way things were. Our podcast name was intentionally entitled Patterns and Paradigms, staking out the position that this is okay, that if you are willing to join the discussion as to how things could be better, then they will be better. While so much uncertainty abounds, so much polarization, 
the cure is to give you a feeling of control. So here's just one example about what I mean about challenging the norms. Everyone's concerned about a second wave and the coming flu season, that COVID-19 will be unbearable when combined with the flu. We argue that the coming flu season will not be the horror that some expect. If people get their flu shot and they follow the new protocols of hand washing, not shaking hands, wearing a mask, and visiting their doctor in virtual waiting rooms, we could just see a milder flu season than we all have anticipated. We are going to take ideas out for a test drive. Not everyone will like it, but we will get you thinking. So let's get started. Before our first guest, Jeremy Travis, the Vice President for Criminal Justice at Arnold Ventures, and previously the President of CUNY's John Jay College of Criminal Justice for 13 years, who will be joining us to talk about um, issues in the post-George Floyd era. Let's spend a few minutes and ask, what's up, Joe? Hey, Joe, tell us, what pattern is working on this week? We have a lot going on at Pattern right now. Throughout the pandemic, Pattern's work has never been more necessary than ever. Since this is our first episode, let me offer a high-level overview of some of the projects we're working on in the housing arena with our Center for Housing Solutions and Community Initiatives. Right now, we're wrapping up a really cool study with the city of Kingston. We're finishing a vacant buildings analysis and offering recommendations and an action plan to help mitigate blight and getting empty buildings back into use. The city established a new land bank, which is very exciting, and they're moving ahead with a rehabilitation of vacant properties throughout the city. Rupco has recently constructed a wonderful new affordable housing development called Energy Square and has started another development to fill the gap of affordable housing in the city of Kingston, much needed affordable housing. The city is now on a pathway to do great things. We're also working on a housing study and action plan for Ulster County. We're conducting a deep data analysis in every municipality to determine the current market, the demands, and the condition of housing. The analytics will serve as a basis for recommendation and strategies to the county to help spur conversations about housing and provide an educational report for municipal officials, board members, and the general public. The Builders Institute of Westchester reached out to us to look at the impact of recent rental housing policy changes at the state level and how COVID-19 is impacting the rental market in Westchester. We're also wrapping up some really cool housing policy work with the city of New Rochelle. This was in response to the substantial surge in housing development in their downtown core. The goal is to provide a balanced policy to assist the creation of a wide range of housing options for residents. Also, stay tuned for our Hudson Valley Housing Week, which will be November 16th through November 20th. We're taking our annual housing conference virtual. We can't be in person, but we certainly will be with you virtually. We'll have some great speakers 
and a panel discussion diving into different aspects of housing each day of the week. It's going to be a great time. Hey, thanks, Joe. I appreciate the wrap up on housing. And there are obviously a lot of other things to focus on and which we'll get to in the weeks to come. Um, I just want to put in a quick plug for our Pattern Fellows Program, which is our mid-career training program. Uh, This year, we're focused on institutional racism. Please check out the application on Pattern's uh, webpage. So let me introduce our guest today. It's Jeremy Travis, um, someone I've known for a while. Jeremy is the was the fourth president of John Jay College of Criminal Justice, a senior college in the CUNY system in New York City. Um, He then, after 13 years, moved on to the Arnold Foundation, where he's been for three years the executive vice president of criminal justice. Now, that's Jeremy's recent experience, but If you really want to understand who Jeremy Travis is, um, please go to patternforprogress.org slash um, podcast, and you'll see the full biography. But Jeremy has been in the world of criminal justice now for almost 50 years. And I'm sorry to date you, but um, the wealth of experience, and and let me just tell our listeners, um, Jeremy and I met when he was special counsel to then police commissioner Ray Kelly. And then afterwards, he did a stint as special advisor to my boss at the time, Ed Koch. And um, I was working for Ed Koch in criminal justice. And that's where we met. But among his experiences, worked for legal aid, the Bureau Institute of Justice, um, NYPD, the, was the director of the National Institute of Justice and a senior fellow at the Urban Institute. Jeremy, I'm so happy to do this with you. And is there any part of your background? Oh, yes, you've even done a clerkship with uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Is there anything else that I've missed that you'd like to highlight? No, uh, just, just to say how nice it is to be with you, Jonathan. And uh, this, this point of our, our trajectory to overlap again is just great fun. And, uh, and I'm looking forward to it. Um, thank you so much for making uh, the time to join us. So um, I thought that given the times we're in, um, there's obviously the pandemic, there's the economic crisis, but then there's the whole issue of social protest. And it seems to have its current manifestations dating back to the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis in the hands of the police. Where do we find the criminal justice system, something that you've studied for 50 years? Where do we find it now? And and what are some of the issues that we should be really paying attention to? I think it's a fair characterization and not overly dramatic to say that we are really at at a critical moment in thinking about the criminal justice system, our response to uh, crime and justice, the history of uh, our approach to these issues, the uh, damage done over many, many years, decades, by uh, our ramp up of the use of prisons, the ways in which uh, the criminal justice system intersects with issues of race and poverty. I've never in my time uh, looking at these issues experienced uh, such a desire to do things fundamentally differently. So I've been part of a reform 
community for, for many years, trying to think about how to do things somewhat differently. Uh, how someone characterized it as tinkering around the edges. But the, the demand right now is to no longer tinker, is to do things uh, very differently and to rethink our approach to crime and safety and communities and what, what happens uh, when, when uh, crimes are committed, well, how should we respond to those events? And that makes it uh, both uh, risky that we will get things wrong or miss the moment, uh, but really exciting if we can think about how to take the energy that's, uh, that we see in the streets and the energy that we see in the, um, the larger community to, uh, to really go back to uh, what we call square one in uh, the square one project and just think about uh, how, starting over and let's, let's reimagine justice. So square one is actually a project of yours, and maybe you can explain that a bit. My colleague, uh, Bruce Western, who's uh, a professor at Columbia and heads up the, the Justice Lab at Columbia, he's a sociologist, we've worked together on many projects. He and I, a number of years ago, were the uh, chair and uh, vice chair of a National Academy panel on the uh, trying to understand the, the growth of incarceration in America. And uh, we finished that project. We co-edited uh, a book that uh, has gotten a lot of attention. But we came out of that by saying to ourselves, there's something missing from the the reform discussion that uh, maybe we can help uh, uh, capture and uh, facilitate, which is a, a vision for something different. That's not to say that people weren't thinking about that in pockets around the country, and that's absolutely true, and we honor that work. But the Square One Project, which we've been you now running for three years, is a, an effort to build a national movement to, in essence, go back to square one, ask very fundamental questions about how we respond uh, to crime, how do we create a healthy and safe community, uh, we, in essence, rethink the social contract um, at a time when, when that is uh, frayed. And the moment that we're in now, after the uh, murder of George Floyd and after the focus on uh, mass incarceration really is a time when there's lots of um, appetite for what we would call square one thinking, which is to just start over and, and just put some other ideas on the table, knowing that we've gone way off course, that we have done enormous, enormous harm in this community, uh, in this country rather, by, by not having an effective response uh, to crime and not having a way to build strong and healthy communities. Um, you know, it, I think this is a good point to remind our listeners that the whole point of this podcast is to take um, a moment to say, how do we come out of this period of um, social unrest, uh, COVID-19, uh, the, the damage done to the economy? How do we come out in a better place? Is it just remotely possible that we can um, do things differently and be in a better place as a result of all the turmoil. So I think this is just a great place to start is in the area of criminal justice. But one of the quick catchphrases that came from um, the George Floyd was defund the police. Was that an unfortunate statement or what do we make of that since I think People that I've spoken to in the criminal justice system who aren't so much in one camp or the other would say, reimagine the police would have been a far better, less catchy phrase. Well, I think we have to have to give credit to the movement for coming up with a phrase that has just uh, captured the public imagination 
in ways that are getting people to talk about it. So defund the police, just I, I've described it as a blunt instrument uh, being uh, shouted from people marching in the streets who uh, are feeling aggrieved in a very deep way about the way the police have uh, interacted with them and the way the police have interacted with uh, particularly black men uh, in the ways that uh, George Floyd murder brought out this movement. But it's much deeper than 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 sort of the police alone. So I think of the defund the police rallying cry as a as a reason to do this deep thinking about how do we produce safety. And when you do that, you end up inevitably asking where are public resources spent? Uh, how do we invest in uh, non-police responses, particularly where a better response would be a public health response or some other response at the community level? And what I find interesting, Jonathan, as you talked about in my bio, I've spent uh, two stints of my career working for the NYPD uh, and policing nationally, is that the police are there. The policing profession believes in its uh, heart of hearts that they have been asked to do too much, uh, that we created a 911 system where we make it really easy for people to call this public agency uh, into action, to come to their house and to respond to something. And the police are not always the best to respond to that. So this fundamental question of when something is amiss or awry or something goes wrong or somebody's hurt in the community and the police are called, are the police the right ones to respond? And if so, how do they respond? What could be a better response? So that's the, the way I take the defund movement. Uh, and even it's more than reimagining the police. It's reimagining safety. It's reimagining justice. How do we want our government to support healthy, safe communities? And how do we want to respond to those incidents, which will always happen when uh, a crime is committed or somebody is harmed? And in particular, how do we use that as an occasion to reweave the fabric of that community and take take proper note of the need that the victim is facing for supportive services, take proper note of the fact that the person who caused that harm probably has a deeper uh, things going on in their life that, that require something other than prison, and just go back to square one. What should we do? Now, that becomes ultimately a budget discussion because that's how government does its work. So the defund movement is, is like, it's like a two-by-four, getting people's attention, and it's doing that, which I love. What's next is, yes, reimagining policing, but that, that's too, even for me too, too narrow. It's reimagining safety and reimagining justice. And that's where this movement intersects with the COVID pandemic. Because safety is also about health. It's also about uh, people feeling safe to come out in their communities. It's also about the ways we relate to each other on, uh, 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 in terms of poverty and race. Uh, so it's it's a it's a big question. Uh, I'll say one one public announcement here. Uh, I'm now reading George Packer's article in in the most recent Atlantic, where he says in essence that we're we're at a moment in time, and this is what happens in history, where big events, pandemics or wars or depressions, allow us to rethink the social contract, and that's where we are. And part of that is about safety and justice and the response to uh, to health issues and and, uh, and crime. There are so many things that came to mind. First of all, I go back to my first ride along in an NYPD um, cruiser. And I think I came out of um, New York City government with an understanding or appreciation, clearly my opinion, that the hardest job in New York City was being a police officer. Mm -hmm. That you walked around with this blue uniform, so you had a target on your back in the community at large, 
you were asked to then intervene in domestic violence. I don't think I would ever want to intervene in someone's domestic violence issues. You're asked to uh, encounter mental health issues on the street as there was you know, a period, long period of deinstitutionalization. And the entirety of what we ask police officers to do today I don't know how any job even comes close to that. And so I wonder, do do you think that in some ways, I mean, you said that some police, or I don't know if it's the larger police departments, um, welcome this discussion about redefining their role. I think I think many police executives and, and frontline officers, uh, because they, you know, you saw their experience, uh, they would resonate with this um this opportunity to think more expansively about their role i don't know any uh, government officials who respond well when the opening call in that discussion is we're going to cut your budget right <laughs> uh, so i think that's that's just no. a, a reality uh that we have to come to grips with um and if we're unhappy with the school system we don't say defund the schools if we're unhappy with the healthcare system we don't say Fund the emergency rooms, so so that's why I look at the, I look at this as this blunt instrument that's opened up a, an absolutely important discussion. And police have to be at the table. It has to be a discussion that is that is based on a shared goal, which is more safety, healthier communities, and that this this almost tactical question about who responds to nine one one calls or who responds to problems in the community. That becomes a, a really interesting sort of public policy exercise. We, you could, you know, do a, a tabletop uh, looking at the last hundred calls and say, how could that have been done differently, and who should have been there, who wasn't there, so that your ride-along experience is is a is a window into this public policy dilemma. We send cops on jobs that are really difficult. That doesn't mean that that uh, we should only send uh, social workers to deal with a mentally ill person who's wielding a gun. I mean, that, we don't want social workers to be killed, injured. So, so this collaborative response model, which we're seeing around the country, uh, is the is the direction we need to go in. And those other uh, responding entities, whether it's community groups like in, in cure violence, which are violence reduction uh, uh, organizations, or it's mental health. Uh, workers who work for, for the city, those need to be funded also, and we can't we can't uh, shortchange them. End of day, if we had a public safety budget that looked at didn't just say look at the police budget, but looked at everything that creates healthy community, would we reallocate the if we didn't have a bigger budget to to uh, to uh, to spend, would would we reallocate those dollars over time? Absolutely, we have overinvested in police, we have underinvested in strong communities, and we're we pay the price for that every day. So that's that's the that's the challenge. It's not like what do we do next budget year, what do we do uh uh just to move money around to, to sort of uh meet a meet a, a political need. Uh the challenge really is to do some very deep questioning of ourselves about how we allocate money and that requires a different definition of safety and healthy communities, uh which is really right upon us right now in particular because of the pandemic, but also uh, following the Black Lives Matter movement. So, you know, I used to think that the best metric I could think of for um, safety in a community 
the best outcome would have been surveying the community to say how many people lock their door. (laughs) And, And that if they didn't lock their door, there was some element or sense of it, like I live in a more rural community. Generally, we don't think that much about locking our door. Now, one of the things about the allocation of resources in a budget and how to address this moment in time, um, I've often heard comments come back to me that the, um, the, it's okay for the larger cities because they have big budgets. But a smaller community of 30,000 or 50,000, we don't have the resources. How would you frame a conversation in a smaller community to say, no, you too can participate in this kind of discussion? Every entity, every governmental unit, city, town, small city, large city, has a budget. And there's a saying that your budget reflects your values. Uh, That's a true maxim wherever it applies. Um, but your budget also reflects your understanding of a problem. And the way you allocate money against a problem is that's what, that's what good budgeting is about. What's, what's the best way to address that problem? So the analytical approach that a large city would use is the same analytical approach that a small, a small town would use would be to say, what are the issues that our community is facing? If it's a, if it's an opioid crisis, the question then is, how do we respond to that? And have we made the right allocation of our resources against that need? If it's a, uh, if there's a high level of, uh, of intimate partner violence in this small community that has never been revealed, hasn't been uh, addressed, uh, then there's a, a problem-solving exercise, which is what's the best way to allocate public resources and private resources uh, to, to reduce that? the incidence of intimate partner violence, and, of course, how do we know over time whether that's happening or not? So the uh, now you, know, you and I have been in governments so where we get wonky really easily about metrics, right? So how do, we, how do we know whether we're making progress? And you're absolutely right. We have the wrong metric, metrics when we, when we think about safety. We, you know, the, this is another uh, sort of uh, uh, dead end that our country has gone into by saying it's all about crime rates measured by what a police department reports to the FBI, and that becomes the metric of success. Boy, how dangerous that is. Um, And a former colleague of ours, you'll remember Michael Smith once said to me, well, let's think about uh, a crime as a measure of a healthy community. And let's imagine two communities. One community where everybody is so afraid, they stay indoors and lock their doors, and therefore never report a crime. That has a zero crime rate, right? Another community where people feel, you know, you know, safe enough to go outdoors, but then, you know, one member of that community does something horrible. They have a terrible crime rate, but they have a healthier community because people can go to work. They can go to church. They can do other, the other things that make for a healthy community. So we, we really do have the wrong metrics. Uh, and uh, we, you know, I, I love watching crime rates go up and down and, uh, and trying to explain why that happens, but it ultimately is not the right metric. And then the other metric that is really important, which is goes beyond the fear metric that you mentioned, is um, the trust metric. So what we're seeing in the Black Lives Matter movement, in essence, is a, um, a strong 
um, cry from mostly the, the black community that the level of trust between that community and the government agency called the police and more broadly the, the criminal justice system is at a breaking point. And the answer is not to say, how can we bring crime down more? Because that's not the problem is in the crime rate. The problem is how that community is being policed. And what is the relationship between members of that community and the police? And the answer is not, in my view, and others will disagree with this, fewer police in that community. The community is really not calling for fewer police. It's not cut the police. It's different police, different policing uh, in that community. And that's, that's a deep cultural change within policing. But how do, how, how do police police? How do they do their job uh, in ways that build trust? And this was, if the audience is familiar with the report of the President Obama uh, Task Force on 21st Century Policing, uh, which came out and then with the change of administration was, was scuttled and demonized, the first, thing, the first recommendation of that task force was that the police need to build trust. It wasn't reduce crime, it wasn't produce safety. And the co-chair of that task force one, one said to me, actually, he sort of wished that they, they framed it as the first thing that police must do is respect the Constitution and build trust. So that the, the notion of constitutional policing, democratic policing, but trust-building policing uh, is a precondition to uh, the ability of the police to produce safety. Is that if the public doesn't trust the police, doesn't isn't willing to work with the police, uh, the police will be less effective. So that that brings to mind, and and I don't know when the um, policy or tactic or strategy of community policing, which almost sounds like what we're talking about today, or a version of that. How long ago was it that that was a new wave kind of policing? And we said we need to get police in the community. Did we just forget about that? Yeah. So how long ago was that uh, when uh, Bill Clinton, governor of Arkansas, ran for president? One of his uh, campaign promises uh, was to um, increase the provide federal funding to increase the number of police around the country by 100,000, but more importantly, to uh, promote the notion of community policing around the country. And... Full disclosure, I was part of his administration, so I was there watching this happen. I think community policing uh, has the uh, uh, kernels of some very powerful ideas. One is that the police must embrace their role of problem solving rather than simply crime responding. So that's that's a powerful idea because it, it uh, puts the problem as a unit analysis rather than the crime to which they respond. So that may sound a little too abstract, but if you imagine that the police sitting down at a table with uh, community members and saying, so what, what are the problems in this community and what can we do about them? And if we can't solve them, what other entities can be brought to the table to solve them? That's a very powerful idea. That's very countercultural for police departments. It's very uh, in opposition to the what we've built up in the 911 response mode, which is, you take a call, you go answer that call. You take another call, you go answer that call. So you're, the problem you're solving is that somebody's called the police and you're there to do something about it. Um, but the other kernel of uh, a good idea within the community policing uh, construct is uh, this notion of partnership. And these two obviously come together. That the police police 
as a verb, only with the consent of the police as a group of uh, people. And that, that, that that's a power-sharing uh, construct, which says that the police have to recognize that communities, in many ways, are the are their client or their partner, or their, they, they should drive the conversation. Um, and that's, that's embedded, if you look at the community policing literature, that's embedded in the literature. So these two big ideas uh, that I see as being at the root of, of community policing, um, yeah, they've survived to some extent, uh, but they were swept up, uh, they were demonized. Uh, community policing took on a bad name, particularly here in New York. Uh, Giuliani, when he became mayor, said that we're not going to do any more community policing, uh, in, uh, change administration in Washington. Uh, but I, I always ask people to sort of hold on to what I think are the, are the important cornerstones of community policing as, as central to this vision of a, of a more democratic and more effective uh, police service, call it a service rather than a police force. Uh, and if we build on those ideas, particularly in this, in this era where uh, the community is demanding more and different, uh, I think we'd be well served. So um, you and I can remember back to the days when the homicides in New York City were 2,300. And through Democratic mayors, Republican mayors, um, Bloomberg would have been an independent slash Republican slash Democratic mayor. De Blasio, who would be more to the other side of the spectrum. But that number had been driven from what we had almost accepted as the norm. It was the height of the crack epidemic, but we accepted it as the norm driven to a number that I would have thought was impossible, that it had gotten as low as 300, I think. Yeah, a little under 300. A little under 300. Homicides. Now, so let's stay with that metric for a little bit is, you know, how many murders there were, not because I want to talk about murders, but for a lot of people, that was the measure of the safety of New York. Yeah. And the number just kept coming down. Yeah. Now, I realize this is over 27 years of history, yeah. but why did it come down? And what were the various interventions from yeah. the, because you've decided, you, you're trying to take me, and I think you're absolutely right, that it is not just the police department, it is the community, and therefore, what are the various elements that are needed to make for a safe community? So how did we get the, that homicide number down as low as it got. Yeah. Uh, the first observation uh, is that this is not a New York City phenomenon, it's a national phenomenon. So the crime rate went up in virtually every city uh, in the country. Um, between 1985 and 1992, the youth homicide rate uh, doubled. In seven years, it doubled. So that, that was the scary time in the crack epidemic when it, it seemed like we were on an you know, upward trajectory in terms of violence uh, that we couldn't, uh, we couldn't escape. And this was when the awful language of super predators and uh, the coming bloodbath uh, came into the national lexicon. And this is, uh, in terms of targeting this with my own history, this is when I went to uh, Washington to, to be director of NIJ. And uh, this was the central question facing all, all government and the country, which was how do we how do we reduce the homicide rate? 
So the homicide rate has come down significantly uh, across the country. Now it's gone up, but it's gone down in different cities. Uh, some cities have uh, the homicide rate has approached where where they were in the uh, in the late 80s. Uh, but the national numbers have come uh, way down, 50%, some like New York, I think it's probably 70 or 80%. And who would have thought when we were sitting in City Hall, Jonathan, you and I, when we reached that, the precise number was 2,245, I'll never forget it, homicides, uh, that that we would be at a, at a time when it was uh, a hair under 300. And it's gone it, was, it was impossible. It was right. not even conceivable. Right. right. And so th- this is, it was called the New York City miracle, and that's really inappropriate because it was a national trend. So if you ask why things come down, you have to try to understand why things went up. And the words you use there uh, to me are the unlock, the key that unlocks the puzzle, which is the crack epidemic. The crack epidemic was a highly destabilizing uh, event that uh, sort of took over urban America. It uh, uh, brought young people into uh, drug markets. It brought guns uh, into the, their, their hands. Um, and uh, the uh, fight over turf and the uh, the mix of uh, uh, young people and guns and uh, and like became a toxic mix. So there was a natural process at work of the stabilization of those markets, the waning of the crack epidemic. But it, there were also two other processes at work that uh, I think are important to to uh, to honor. Uh, one was uh, police departments got better. Uh, police departments got better in thinking about uh, how to respond to violence. Uh, a lot of uh, new strategies uh, evolved over that time, evidence-based strategies, hotspots policing, focus deterrence, um, the, the focus that come, comes from the ComStat system that Bill Bratton brought to New York, the focus on violence, the relentless focus on uh, trying to solve crimes, bring, bring uh, levels of violence down, being, being uh, uh, responsible in that sense for um, levels of, of violence. Uh, there's lots of changes within policing, and they should they should and they do get credit for that. They don't get all the credit, however. The other uh, thing that happened is was the that the community capacity to do something about safety and violence also ramped up. And uh, there's a great book by uh, Princeton sociologist Patrick Sharkey uh, that, that looks at that phenomenon in New York. Uh, it's called an uneasy piece, and he. He documents with great evidence the, the growth of the nonprofit capacity in New York to, 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 this is when we say, what's a safe community? A safe community is a strong community. A strong community is a community that has this capacity. Um, and we honor that uh, in, in, in Sharkey's work, and that happened around the country. And the other thing that uh, is a little bit, uh, uh, almost sounds sort of uh, mystical, is that on the community side of this equation, uh, community said, we've had enough. Uh, a colleague of mine, Roger Connor, once called this the release of the antibodies. That, that a healthy community, a healthy person, a healthy body, uh, when attacked in, a, in this almost sort of biological way, says, I'm not going to take it anymore. Uh, and so you have community organizations that are marching in the streets against violence. You have people saying, uh, uh, you know, enough of this. You have uh, the growth of business improvement districts that took over some of the safety responsibilities in their communities. Uh, you have churches that are that are organizing against uh, violence in their communities. So the release of the antibodies, coupled with this more structural uh, way that uh, communities became stronger, uh, is to me a very important part of the story, underappreciated part of the story, 
But it's it's important for us to think about what we learn from that part of the story because that's what we want to build on uh, in the future. We want police to continue doing their good work uh, and be, be engaged in what we call precision policing, uh, focusing where the violence is, partnering with with uh, community groups, partnering with uh, violence interrupters and the like. Uh, but we also want to pay a lot of attention to the other side of this equation, which is what does it take to build strong communities? And that's where this intersection with the pandemic, to me, is so exciting. You know, the epidemiologist said recently that the pandemic has exposed the fault lines of our society. And the, and the fault lines are that we, we, we don't have good health care, we don't have strong communities, we don't have good education systems. We've underinvested in what makes for a strong community. If you have a strong community, you'll have less crime. Jeremy, did you have a chance to, you know, Governor Cuomo issued an executive order um, basically telling that every police department had to go through a process of yeah. reimagining. Yeah. Have you seen it or paid attention to it? I, I've seen it. I, my, uh, my ears perked up uh, when I heard him announce that. Uh, it may have been at one of his COVID briefings. But in any case, I remember hearing him say that. And I said, well, that's an interesting thing for a governor to do. We think of policing as being very local right. and, and, and not being uh, uh, sort of uh, subjected to uh, state-level uh, regulation or encouragement other than funding, uh, which is a big thing. But uh, So the fact that he's using his executive order authority to do this, I find fascinating. Uh, you're, I'm sure, in closer contact than I am with jurisdictions that are going through this, but the executive order is a reimagination process, and it, it uh, describes who should be at that table, including, including community groups. Uh, it's not a budget process per se, although uh, at the end of the executive order says that the budget director gets to take a look at those things, right? So you can you can feel the uh, the, the cross crosswalk there between uh, people doing the work and the budget process, and also says that some state funding might be contingent on uh, successful completion of that work. But what I hope is that is that jurisdictions, just to go back to the beginning of our conversation, take this moment really seriously. Uh, and uh, you know, in my job at Arnold Ventures, we're looking at uh, jurisdictions around the country that are doing this. It's, not because uh, Governor Cuomo asked, but because they're they're looking at this moment as a moment of opportunity to go back to basics, back to square one. What does safety look like? How is the money being spent? And if it's if it's simply a uh, lowercase PR police reform opportunity, that's that's missing an opportunity. Uh, if, they, if if it's only about how can we change policing or you know, adopt more community policing strategies, the, the bigger opportunity is this community wide discussion about. Uh, how does our community want to produce safety? How do we define safety? And how do we move our police department in the direction of being uh, a service, not, uh, not a force? And uh, how can the police department, as a very important government entity, partner in more productive ways with other government entities, particularly the healthcare providers, particularly those who work on mental health, particularly those who in interact with young people? Uh, the police, in my view, have been. Have been given. It's not that they've taken it on. They've, they've been asked to do too much. And a, a partnership model that says, you can, you, should, you, you, you can and should do what you can and should do, but we can't ask you to do everything. And that means we need new ways for you to respond uh, to problems, certainly, but also respond to this larger imperative of, of creating uh, healthy and safe communities. Um, let, let me switch gears for a minute here to something that you've written on, which is, you know, the New York 
the United States has been known for having the largest uh, prison population. And, you know, you have written on it, you've studied it. Is it an element of safety that people feel, gee, we have more people in prison, I'm safer, or we've got it all wrong? And again, we get back to the metrics of that isn't really the right way to look at how, you know, and, and I think you you wrote about, was it even working in terms of reentry? And so maybe you could take us there for a couple of minutes. So one of the really important changes in our country over the past uh, cent- uh, half century has been the uh, fourfold increase in the per capita rate of incarceration in America. We now have uh, incarceration rate uh, that is, depending on which country you compare us to, five to six to seven to ten times higher than any other democracy. And the, the panel that I chaired at the National Academy of Sciences that was asked to examine this question, like how did we get here and what are the consequences, uh, put out a great uh, book report uh, if people want to read it, Came, came to the following conclusion, which is uh, that we, we are here because we chose to be here. We chose to be here to have increased the, the prison population to the extent we have is toward three million people in prisons and jails. We chose to be here through the actions of our elected officials. We're not here because crime rates went up because they've gone up and they've gone down over this 50-year period, and we just talked about how low they are. They're at historic lows. Both violent crime and property crime rates are at historic lows, but we still have the world's largest prison population. Why? Why didn't the prison population at least go down when the crime rates went down? So we chose to be here because we have come through a political era where tough on crime was the winning political strategy. So people ran for office, Democrats and Republicans, pledging to be tough on crime, and they have been. Prosecutors get thrown into this mix as well. And tough on crime, we sort of have one way to think about being tough on crime, which is to put more people in prison and for longer prison terms. And certainly people who run for state office, they don't have many options in terms of how to respond to crime other than lengthening prison sentences or criminalizing things that weren't criminal before or creating mandatory minimums or three strikes um, uh, laws or in New York's case, the Rockefeller uh, statute, which put lots of people in prison for drug offenses. So, so we're here because we chose to be here. We've elected people who brought us here, which means that we, we need to rethink the politics of imprisonment and elect people who are pledged, uh, pledged to bring the prison population down. But you asked a different question, Jonathan, which is how do we think about this in terms of the crime rate? So the other important finding from the National Academy report is that if you look at the research, and there's a lot of research on this question, whether the, and ask whether the increase in the prison population has reduced the crime rate, has produced more safety, which was the premise. That's why people got elected, was they said, you're going to be safer if we have more people in prison. That premise is not true. It has not been proven out to be true. That's not to say that there aren't people in prison now who, if they were released, would commit crimes. That's a different question. The question is whether, as a society, we have seen a reduction in our crime rate because our prison population has gone up. Uh, there's been a modest, that's a direct quote, uh, uh, 
impact on public safety. But in terms of the investment, $80 billion a year, what a lousy investment if the goal was to, to create safety. So the defund the police movement, I've asked my colleagues in the advocacy community to please include prisons in that defund. That's <laughs> a call for action. And in fact, I think if we defunded prisons and reduced the prison population and put that money back in the communities, uh, that would be a simpler political lift uh, and would actually respond more effectively in many ways to the call for healthier communities if we made that reinvestment. Um, but that's, that's for me, is the next, is the next challenge, is to, is to think about how, as a country, and maybe New York will lead the way here, we can very systematically, over the next decade, find a pathway to reducing the number of people in prison, because we don't need to have so many people in prison in order to have safety, reinvest that money in communities uh, so that we have stronger, healthier communities, and uh, recognize at the same time we've created an infrastructure that employs lots of people, and the uh, Corrections Officers Union is entitled, in my view, to a to be have a seat at that table and say, what about us and the communities and the towns around the, around the state that now have prisons in them right. and their economy depends on it? We have left them in the lurch also. So this is not like getting angry at them. You know, they, they're doing what they should do to feed their families. So the, the larger political ambition here as we come out of what Bruce and I Bruce Weston and I call the, the era of punitive excess. If we come out of this era of punitive excess, we need a, a reinvestment strategy, a decommissioning strategy, as if these were military bases. Think about how do we how do we close prisons over the next 10 or 20 years, the ones that we've built up. Uh, the prisons also need to be thought of as we want to create prisons that are that are healthy for the people who live there and work there. They are not now, they are COVID traps. We should not have people who are elderly and, and, and uh, on dialysis machines in prisons. But what have we created here where we have a system of nursing homes behind bars because we have so many people in prison for so long? And the impact on the communities of color, particularly African-American men, has been devastating. And the, the movement on the street, which is calling for racial justice, is a call to reverse course. Okay, so now I think there's one more piece to this puzzle that I want to touch on, which is um, this president refers to our involvement in the Middle East as the longest war. But I will say that the war on drugs (laughs) is clearly been the longest war. And, you know, one of my favorite authors is Don Winslow who has written this trilogy on the Mexican cartels. It's a novel, but it is, he has, it's like Clancy. He has so much inside information that the reading of these books is fascinating to me. And, and the taking down of a cartel head is a great headline, but does absolutely nothing to disrupt the flow of drugs into this country. So, it it takes a lot to say is this a, a supply side issue or is this really a demand side issue and the reallocation of resources to say have we ever spent all of that money on the demand side right. and would that also make a difference to mass incarceration violence etc have you thought about the war on drugs and what are we doing so the National Academy report identified the three drivers of 
what we call mass incarceration. One is, I just referenced, we made long sentences longer, three strikes and habitual offender statutes and things like that. Uh, the second is mandatory minimums, which I referenced, another uh, sort of legislative uh, um, sort of sleight of hand. You'll be safer if we require everybody to go to prison for some minimum time. But the third is the war on drugs. And uh, you, can, you can pretty easily chart the course uh, of uh, or the impact of the war on drugs on incarceration rates. And it's, uh, I did a study recently about uh, how this affected uh, New York prison population. And it's this just a larger increase than any other crime, crime type over the last uh, 30 years. So what do we get for that? Uh, I have no sympathy for people who are the, the cartel uh, uh, chieftains. Uh, I have a lot of sympathy for people who suffer from substance use disorder. And I have a lot of sympathy for communities that suffer from uh, drug markets on their street corners. So the supply side, we think supply-demand is, is if that's the, the way to break out the discussion. Yes, supply is, is important, but supply is at many different levels. Uh, and demand is, is, uh, is complicated because it, it, it's a user, ultimately. Uh, so yes, we should have invested a lot of that money in uh, health responses, treatment responses to people who are suffering from addiction or on the verge of addiction, and uh, what a difference that would have made. Um, but we also need to recognize that there are communities whose sense of well-being, back to our discussion about safety and fear, is uh, diminished because there are uh, people selling drugs on their corner, and uh, that's not the, the way that they want to live in their community. So we need to also pay attention uh, to them, and we can do a lot to, to reverse course here. Jeremy, I can't thank you enough for your time um, and your insight. I mean, it's, I, I hope our listeners will uh, take the time to look up your biography and understand um, that this is not someone just issuing a quick soundbite. This is someone who has lived in this system for 50 years. So. Thank you for joining us today. Well, it's my pleasure and great to see you again, Jonathan. Thank you for tuning in to Patterns and Paradigms, the Pattern Podcast. For more information about this episode, visit our website, patternforprogress.org forward slash podcast.